You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. We're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you guys open up there. We, um, one of the announcements I was, I was just kind of holding off till, um, as we were, as you're thumbing through your Bibles, finding the book of Acts, on Wednesday nights, the last week of each month, we, we started actually last month with this. Um, we're, we've called it, for lack of better words, veracity. And the idea of veracity is it's a pursuit to find truth. And um, we, we live in a, a critical time period, I believe, a, a critical place in um, the life of our country and, in fact, in, in our and our families too. And, and so this year marks a national election. In case you have not heard, <laughs> basically every other night there's a GOP um, debate. So, and there's pl- plenty of mud to be slung. But, but we are in the, a, a time of, of election. And, and one of the things that, that I believe is so really important for us is this, that, that we, so often we hear this idea of a separation of church and state. And, and, and the way some interpret that means that the church and state should have nothing to do with each other. And um, when we're in church, we should only speak about God and things relative to the church and politics should never engage and vice versa. And I, I think that's a, a twisted view on what our founding fathers meant by separation of church and state. And when we go look at it historically, you understand, and not to make this a history lesson, but, but our founding fathers came out of a, uh, of a time in which when they left England, they came, there was one nationalized religion, and they didn't want that. Um, and they never intended for there to be no church and state involvement. In fact, when you read our founding documents, you can't help but see God written all throughout that. And, but anyways, as a course of, over a course of time, we've gotten to this, this point where we've just kind of swayed from that and left some of those things. And, and what I, I feel is important is this. I'm not, you're not, don't come here to church expecting me to say, you need to vote for so-and-so. Um, it's not that I'm afraid to tell you who I'm going to vote for. If you want to ask me later, I'll tell you. Um, but, but I don't think it's my time or place to tell you whom you should vote for. But I will tell you this, and I believe this very strongly, that there are a lot of biblical issues at hand. And so what we're going to do, what we're, what we, our plan is on these, the last Wednesday of each month is, is we're going to take different issues, and some of them are, are very current. Some of the things that we hear about, and if you watch a debate, you may hear them talk about. And I want us to look at those issues from a biblical view. And I believe once we look at these issues from a biblical view, then when it comes time for us to, to vote, hopefully we're looking at those candidates and we're looking at the issues through the lens of the Bible. And I think if we do that, then, um, then it'll be a little bit easier. Um, and so this, this week, the, the last month, the end of January, we looked at, we talked about sanctity of life and, and specifically abortion. This Wednesday night, um, we're, we're calling it, or I'm, I've, I've called it blurred lines. And we're going to talk about the same-sex marriage, this kind of transgender revolution, and, and some of those issues, and, um, and try and look at those from a biblical perspective. Again, one of the things I've said from the very beginning as we talk about these subjects, um, they're not always easy. Um, there's a pretty strong likelihood that um, many of these issues will have um, an impact in our families' lives. Some of them may direct us or may impact us directly. Some of them, you know, maybe not necessarily directly, but we know of people or, or whatever. And so as we, as we have these discussions, I, I, I want us to be very 
very firm in that we will, we will use the Bible to find truth. But as we speak truth, we're going to do it with grace and love. All right? So we may not always agree on everything. Um, but I believe if we, if we look to the Bible and if we speak with grace and love, then we can all leave hugging each other, okay? And so um, some issues are a little bit more black and white than others. Some, there may be some more gray areas. But still, whenever we have more than one person, we're going to have more than one point of view, right? <laughs> and so we just want to make sure that we do this in grace and love and not in judgment and hate, okay? And so that's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Um, and so I would encourage you guys, this is not just like a closed-door meeting, like you have to be an active member of Redemption Hill Church to come participate and listen. You can bring anybody you want, but if there's picket signs out front, then I'm going to come hunt you down, okay? <laughs> I know you guys know. But, but I, again, I encourage you, and I would encourage you guys to pray through these things. Last time we had a guest come um, participate with some of it. This week I'm going to do... Um, I'm going to handle this one myself, so, so pray for that. And then, again, we mentioned D-Now. Kids, I know the youth are excited about it, but adults, parents, grandparents, I would really encourage you guys to start praying now. Youth, those of you who have invited friends and you're still waiting to find out if they're going to come, pray for them. Pray that God opens the door that they can come. Uh, pray that you be with all of our, you know, just pray that God be, is with all of our, our youth. Uh, no doubt every year we have some that will come that, that, you know, aren't believers, that don't come from a church background. And so everything we mention and talk about is, you know, it's new to them. They don't know it. They don't understand it. So pray for those. Pray for even the ones that come that are even our, our regular, like every time the church door is open, they're there. Um, I just believe that whenever we get away for a retreat and we spend some time with each other, and we spend some time um, looking at the Bible, that, that God will do big things. So, so pray for those things. All right. Acts chapter 9. We have spent last week kind of introducing or reintroducing one of the, the, the major characters of, of really the Bible as a whole, but, but of the New Testament. Really, it's kind of hard-pressed to find somebody more monumental outside of Jesus Christ in the New Testament than the man that we saw last week. And, 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 and Saul, and we can kind of use Saul and Paul interchangeably later on in another chapter or two, we, we see that transition where where, we, where the scriptures stop referring to him as Saul and they pick up this idea of, of Paul as a name. But Paul's one of these like monsters of the faith and, and he wrote uh, a lot of the New Testament. And, and it's, it, it's amazing. One of the things I like about Acts is, is one, there's a lot of history and I love history. And, and two, we see the birth of the church, but, but, but we really see this before and after of, of Saul. And as we considered Saul, and the first time we saw Saul was with Stephen, this young deacon who, who had done so much, who had, who had gone from being just the guy that helped organize some meals and, and goods for, for some of these widows, and he had grown up to where he had become this evangelist. He was going into these synagogues, and, and he was really burdened with just sharing this, this gospel, this gospel that, that broke away from these traditions, this gospel that, that would tell the people that, that the law won't save you. Your heritage will not save you. This, this temple isn't where God resides. And this was considered blasphemy to these hardline traditional religionists. And, and so the result was they arrest Stephen, put him on this mock trial, and with this gritting of teeth, they take Stephen outside the city and they stone him. And as we read that interaction about where they're about to stone Stephen, again, this isn't these little pebbles. It's not pea gravel that they're throwing at Stephen. There are these large rocks. I mean, so much, and it would take such a, a long time that those guys would take their, their outer robe off and, and so they could get comfortable. They could stretch. They could throw the stuff. And they would take this, their, their outer garments, and they went to the feet of this young guy named Saul. And Saul was one of the leading individuals in the Sanhedrin. He, he was a, a man, although, although he was young, he, he, had, he had attained the greatest education in theology of the day. I mean, he ad advanced above all of his peers. And so they came to Saul, and they're, they're bringing their outer garments, and they're laying at Saul as if to get this final nod of approval to stone Stephen. And, and Saul gives them this approval. 
And as they begin to stone Stephen, Stephen looks up to, to heaven and, and he sees Jesus. He, he literally sees Jesus. I mean, it's not that he got hit in the head and he's dazed and confused, but he literally sees Jesus. And, and what's so amazing about that, so throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, when we read different types of um, passages about Jesus after he had ascended into heaven, we read about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But in this particular passage in Acts where Stephen is being stoned, he looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus not sitting at the right hand of God, but standing. Standing, I believe, with his arms stretched out as a way of of approval to this young man who stood for his faith. And and the cost of him standing firm in his faith was ultimately going to be death here on earth, but a greeting of a hug by Jesus in heaven. And so as he does that, as, as, as Stephen's seeing this, he, he, almost, he borrows a phrase that Jesus himself spoke from the cross. When Jesus, as he was about to give up, his spirit cried out to his father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen says the exact same thing. As these guys are hurling rocks at him, Stephen cries out to God, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing. And as he's saying those words, I think it's this, this switch just turns. And the hostility amps up even further. And Saul sees this. And from that point on, begins to go on this witch hunt. See, when Stephen's being stoned, it's, it's above Saul to be one of the guys that casts the stones. He's the bigwig. He's overseeing. And he's watching. But as he sees this young Stephen glowing and praying for him, hatred fills him. And he goes on this witch hunt, and he's going all over finding these Christians, and he would arrest these Christians. And in many cases, most cases, those Christians, it wasn't just a little arrest. It wasn't a night in jail, but for many of them, it was death. And his territory began to expand beyond just going after those in Jerusalem. So he goes to the high priest, and asked for all the names of the, the Christians in Damascus. And so he begins to travel to Damascus, about 135 to 150 mile journey from Jerusalem. Again, in, in their time, today we think 135, 150 miles isn't that big of a deal. Hop in our car, and if you're a teenager, you can be there in 30 minutes, right? But in those days, and it was a seven-day journey, and he's going, and, and as he's approaching Damascus, this divine encounter takes place. And that's what we talked about last week, where, where, where Saul's knocked from his horse, falls to the ground. He's blinded by this bright light, and he hears a voice. And that voice was Jesus. And we see this conversion of Saul. And, and Saul goes back to, or is taken to um, Damascus. He's still blinded, and for three days he remained blind, didn't eat. He's fasting. He's praying to God. And and God brings this other man around, Ananias. And last week we kind of talked a little bit about this idea where you have this big wig in Saul, well-known. I mean, he's the celebrity. But yet God uses this little-known individual by the name of Ananias. The only time we read about Ananias in the scripture is this particular account. And he's the one that goes to Saul, and he's the one that will walk in there, and, and God appears to him in a, a vision telling him to go to, to Saul. And again, for us, I, I, I mentioned this last week, but I really need us, I want us to really consider this. When we think about Saul, so often we think of this good, righteous apostle Paul, don't we? That's who we think. I mean, when we first think of, of Paul, that's what we think about all these great things that Paul will go on to do. But, but we can't forget what Saul was. And, and last week I tried the best comparison that I could draw for us to get a glimpse today would be for us to consider Saul being part of ISIS, okay? We read about ISIS today a lot, don't we? I mean, whenever there's something bad that happens in the world, any type of bombing, any type of killing, anything like that, whether it's on a, a, a small scale or a large scale, they're the quickest to take claim for it, aren't they? They're the ones that they want the, the record. Now, I, my guess is, and I feel pretty confident in that, 
that we in this room today would say that ISIS is twisted, they're messed up, and they're anything but Christian, right? They don't chase after Jesus Christ. But one of the things we have to understand is this, guys. Those people that are involved in ISIS are deeply, deeply religious. It's what causes this to be so difficult. I mean, because the, the views that they're holding, they hold to the point where they're willing to sacrifice their lives for. And as they're doing these things, as twisted as they are, they do it with the thought that they're doing something good in their particular faith for their Allah. Now, it's wrong. But in their minds, they think they're serving their God. And Saul would be much like that. Like Saul's doing these things. He's hunting down these Christians, not because he's not religious, but because he is religious. I mean, Paul is the chief, Saul is the chief theologian of their day. He's doing all of this thing, all of these things because he feels like he's protecting their faith. I mentioned last week, one of the great reasons why they rejected Jesus as the Messiah was because he was hung on a cross. And for those who, who studied and believed the Old Testament, they would believe the law. They'd go back to the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy said, any man hung from a cross was cursed. And so in their minds, they thought this was, this was a curse. There's no way he could be the Messiah if he's being hung by a tree from a cross. And so all this stuff that Saul's doing, he's doing with the intent of, of religion, of his particular faith. But he's wrong. And this miraculous thing takes place, this conversion. And he gets there, and, and he's brought home, and Ananias is sent there, or Ananias is sent there. And again, I, I, for us to think about that, for us to think in the terms, for us to, 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 to think of a Saul as an ISIS, and what would you do today if God had called you to go share your faith with one of these leaders of the ISIS movement? What if, what if he's in an apartment complex somewhere here in Tallahassee and God sends you to go talk with that person? It gets a little bit scary now, doesn't it? I mean, you're sent in there solo by yourself with someone who's known as a mass murderer. Most of us would be very cautious in going, wouldn't we? But yet Ananias goes. And he sees this poor, helpless Saul, this Saul who's blinded. And Ananias goes and he puts his hands on his eyes, on Saul's eyes. And he refers to him as Brother Saul. And think of that. And there's a strong likelihood that Ananias knew somebody, knew people that Saul had had arrested and killed or beaten. There's a good chance that, that Ananias' name would have been on that list that Saul had going to Damascus to have arrested. But yet Ananias goes to him in a loving way, embraces him and touches him and calls him brother. And so we see this, and, and from that point, the, the scales fall off of the eyes of Saul. He, he regains his sight. He begins to eat. And, and that's where we left off. So today we're picking up in verse 20. I'm going to read verses 20 through 30, and then we're going to talk about it. So Acts chapter 9, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. Interesting side note. That phrase where Saul refers to him as son of God, that's the only time in the book of Acts that you see Jesus referred to as the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he was not come here for his purpose, for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23 says, And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, he, how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, and they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for all the things you've done for us. We thank you for this, this man, Paul, that we read about. Thank you for this testimony that we see, the before and the after. Lord, I, I'm thankful that you give us this picture, a real-life picture of a person. We see redemption in such a beautiful way in this story. And many of us, many of us have testimonies similar, maybe not to the extreme of a Paul, but many of us have these testimonies, God, where we were in very far places, places we, we regret, and yet you showed up in our lives and you changed us, you transformed us, you, you worked in us and through us. And today we're much different because of you. Lord, this morning there may be some here today that have, have never had that Damascus Road experience. They've never, they've never come to know you. Holy Spirit, I pray right now as we work through these few verses today that you press upon our hearts, that you reveal yourself to us, that you work in us, and that you change us. For those who've never accepted you, call them. For those of us who have but are struggling, God, I pray that you use this today in a very special way. God, I pray that you change us, that we all leave here differently. Jesus, I pray that you give me your words, give me your heart, give me your passion. Help me to be faithful to you and to your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. And so, quickly, as we read this, um, the first couple of verses we read, verses 20 through 23, it, it's, it talks about how immediately Paul went, Saul went and began preaching these synagogues. He's going around, he's telling everybody about Jesus. Now, he, he runs into a little bit of a, a stone wall, if you will. For some odd reason, people don't trust him. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like they know all that he's already done. They know his track record. They've heard, they've seen, they know all that stuff. And so, so they're slow to accept Verse 23, it tells us that, um, begins off by saying, when many days had passed. This is what's so cool about the Bible. I, a week or two ago, I told you that the, the story about Saul's conversion in the book of Acts is mentioned three different times. So we read about it in Acts chapter 9. We will see it again in Acts 22. You'll see it again in Acts 26. You read all three of these accounts, and it begins to kind of fill in these different pieces of the puzzle. And then Paul will refer to these different things throughout the epistles. So what's interesting, and you don't necessarily have to turn there. I think we, I may have it on the screen now. I'll, I'll read some of it to you guys. But, but if you would like in, you know, in the margins of your Bible, between verse 22 and 23, there's this gap of history that, that the book of Acts doesn't record. Paul writes about it in, in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. So Galatians 1, 16 says this, And was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anybody. Verse 17, Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see Caiaphas and remained with him 15 days. And so those first, for, from verse 20 down to 23, we have a three-year window. So Saul is converted. He's immediately going to the synagogues and telling people. And then in the midst of this, he goes away to Arabia for a season and ultimately returns back to Damascus. I don't know how long he was in Arabia versus Damascus. All we know is, according to Galatians chapter 1, 
verse 17, that, he was, that, that window was three years. Three years take place. He comes back again into, Jeru- or into Damascus and he's preaching and he's telling people about Jesus and, and good things are happening. And there are people that are accepting, there are people that are learning, there are people that are growing. And when so often happens, when those things occur, that religious group gets upset and gets mad. And to a certain extent, Saul now gets a taste of his own medicine. The, the one who has spent so many years hunting Christians now finds himself being the one hunted to the point where they're plotting to kill Saul. Why? Because he was doing the exact same thing that Stephen had been doing. He's going into the synagogues. He's telling people about Jesus. He's sharing his testimony. He's preaching about the Son of God, Jesus, the one that had been crucified, the one who had died for their sins. He's going and he's telling them all that, that, that Jesus was the only way. And it flew in the face of what they had taught, what they had believed in. And so they, in turn, were beginning to devise a plan to kill Saul. Saul's disciples, his, his followers, caught wind of what was going to take place. And so they came up with a plan. And there must have been somebody in that group that lived along the city wall. And they took Saul. They put him in a basket at night and lowered him over the wall. I think through this. This is Saul. The one who had received the greatest education that resources could find and provide. And this is the one who, was, who had been a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 elders of the, the church in Jerusalem. And this is Saul, the one that they were seeking the final approval to, to stone Stephen. This is a high-ranking individual. This is, this is the celebrity of the day when it came to the faith in Damascus. And consider the humiliation of having to get into a basket in the middle of the night and run away. It's interesting because I'm sure as that's taking place, I'm sure as those moments are occurring, I I, I would suspect that Saul is second-guessing. And I'm sure Saul is thinking through all these different things, all these privileges that he had, and, and probably wondering to a certain extent, why in the world is it going this way? I mean, I've, I've given up all this. I mean, I heard, I saw the bright lights. I heard the voice. I mean, I've spent three years now. And this is what happens? A basket at night and I got to run? I, I would encourage you, right after verse 25, it, it tells you that, about how he's lowered the basket. In that margin there, right, right in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians, or as one of our potential candidates says, 2 Corinthians, <laughs> chapter 11. <laughs> 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 30 through 33 says this. And this is Paul speaking. This is Paul recounting. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness the Lord, or the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Verse 32 says, At Damascus, the governor under the king Arteris was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So later on in life, as Paul's looking back, And there's a lot that Paul can look back and the highlight of of these great moments. And Paul says, the greatest moment in my life, certainly aside from when he met Jesus in Damascus, was when they had to lower me over the wall. That moment of weakness. That moment of of uncertainty. That that moment when I was frailest. That was the greatest moment of my life. Folks, today, I know in this room there is 
uncertainty. There is hurt. And, and for some of you, you might be just like Paul being lowered in a basket. And all you can think about are all these difficulties and how hard the situation is, how, how difficult um, the job situation is, how, how difficult the relationship may be, how difficult your children may be, how difficult your spouse may be, how difficult church may be, how difficult finances may be, how difficult your in-laws may be, how difficult whatever. There's a whole list. But I would encourage us to consider like what Saul did, what Paul later in life, as he looks back and he says, listen, it was that moment. It was as I was being brought down over a wall in a basket. That that's what I'm going to boast about. Because when I was at my weakest, God was at his greatest. And God would use this in tremendous ways. He doesn't see it at first. And, and so he's lowered over the wall and he's going to run off to Jerusalem. And so how is he received in Jerusalem? Verse 26 says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. This is again kind of Jesus' 12. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. And so here's Saul. He has to run for his life because there's a plot to kill him. He heads back to Jerusalem. The group he thinks he can go find help is the disciples, the church leaders, and they want nothing to do with them. Now, again, let me remind you guys, they knew Saul. They saw Saul. They saw all the wicked things he had done. They had saw uh, all the, the mean, despicable things that Saul had done. He had ravaged through Jerusalem before he left to Damascus. And there's no doubt that, that what he had done had huge impact on their lives. And yet, he saw the bright lights and heard the voices, and now he's changed. And they don't believe it. Again, I think this is a, a good word for us as a church. As God works in people's lives. And we see them beginning to change. How accepting of that are we? I mean, do we require them to go through hoops to satisfy what we believe? Are we going to question everything they do? Everything that they say? One of the things I, I, I've from the beginning, from our very first service at Redemption Hill Church, when we started in October of 2013, we went through the Great Commission. We spent the first four weeks talking about what the Great Commission meant to us. The second week, we looked at John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well. I mean, she had a whole laundry list of, of, of baggage, Multiple husbands living in sin, just, I mean, having to go to the well in the middle of the day when the women wouldn't even accept her. And Jesus crosses this racial line to, to meet with her. He, he crosses over this, this um, religious line. He, he crosses over a social line. He does whatever he has to do to, to, to get to her, to, to, to love her. And one of the things I've, I've challenged us as a church is I want us to be this, this church that is authentic, that's real, that, that understands that we are all messed up sinners. And we don't glorify in being messed up sinners. We glorify in a God who saves us, redeems us, and changes us. But the reality is we're all messed up people. And I, to borrow from Paul, you guys are looking at the chief of sinners, Okay, so that's not me, pastor, looking out at you guys, pointing fingers that you guys are messed up. Listen, we could spend all service today and for the rest of the year talking about all my issues. We're messed up people. But God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And so one of the hearts that God's, or one of the passions that God's placed in my heart is that we want to create a very authentic church where people feel they can come and be real. Now that's great to say, right? 
And I would guess if I were to ask, if we were to take a poll, who wants to be part of a church? Who wants Redemption Hill Church to be a loving, authentic, welcoming church? Raise your hand. We'd all raise our hands. Probably if I said, who doesn't raise your hand, we probably wouldn't see any hands raised, right? I would say that. This Wednesday night, we're going to talk about same-sex marriage. We're going to talk about homosexuality, these gender issues, stuff like that. What happens if God brings us people of that lifestyle? What happens if, if next Sunday an alcoholic stumbles through those back doors? What happens? Are we going to raise our hands then to say we want to be a love, welcoming church that's authentic and real? Or does the vote change? You see, sometimes we expect people to know the rules before they get here. The only way they can come in the doors is if they abide by our rules and pay their dues before they leave. And that's not, I pray and hope, that we ever get to. My, my prayer is, as, as God brings us people like that, that rather than just sit and look and stare, that we go, we talk, we love, we hug, we embrace, we bring them back, we check in on them. We don't make them feel like they have to be put in a basket and leave over the wall. So Saul gets there, and the place that he should be able to find refuge wants nothing to do with him. They're too scared. But then we see this character come back. We, we saw them at the end of, of Acts chapter 4. I believe it was verse 36 and verse 37. Is in that passage where it's talking about how the church is embracing, they're growing, and, and they're, they're selling all this stuff together, and they're, they're, they're giving it to the church, and they're growing, they're looking out for each other's needs. And at the very end, there's this guy by the name of Barnabas. It was, it was what they called him was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And this, this particular guy, he came, and, and he sold some land that he owned. Back in these days, like, land was precious, much more than it is today. For most of these people, this is, an, this is an inheritance. If you had land, it was passed down generation after generation after generation. Yet this guy Barnabas took at least part of his, his land. He sold it, and he gave his money to the church. And that's what sparked Ananias and Sapphira in the next chapter. Well, well Barnabas comes back here the son of encouragement. He sees Saul. He sees the fear of the disciples. And Barnabas comes alongside Saul. I mean, I could almost see Barnabas put his arm around his shoulders and bring him into the room and then chastise the disciples. And he says, listen, guys, this man, Saul, he's gone to Damascus. He, he was preaching the gospel he was declaring it. He was talking about Jesus. Like he saw Jesus, he heard Jesus. This is legit. And because of Saul, the disciples, or because of Barnabas, the disciples let Saul into their group. And he would spend some time with, with those disciples and they would encourage him. And Saul, in the midst of that, would continue to do one thing, the same thing he did in, in Damascus, no doubt the same thing he did in Arabia, and now here in Jerusalem. He was going to synagogue after synagogue and preaching. And then friction occurred again. In verse 30, or verse 29, it says, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And again, the Hellenists is, is kind of the more, is the Greek Jews of the day. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Paul sent to Tarsus. Paul will go to Tarsus for somewhere between seven and ten years before we see him again. Paul is a continual character and scripture that as we read these stories we we understand that God never promises a life full of rose petals and rainbows God never 
promises fame. In fact, as we see this, I believe we see that God's more concerned with faithfulness than fame. We see that, that, that this growth period, that, that as, as Saul gave his life to Christ, that God had to rewire Saul. We'll read in later as we get to this in our journey at Redemption Hill, when we get into the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, Saul, Paul, had such a love for the Jews, like his, his people. He had such a love that he made, he made this statement. He said that he would go to hell if God would reach the Jews. Like that's a real love. That he would be willing to go and go to hell in place of these people, the ones who had rejected him, the ones that he had to run from, the ones that were plotting to kill him. Saul has such love for them that he, was, he told God, I will go to hell if it means that you will reach them. I mean, all of his training, all of his background, he seemed like the absolute perfect candidate to reach the Jews. But do you remember what God had called him to do? We mentioned it last week, that he was called to the Gentiles. It's the first time in Scripture we see a call to take the, the gospel to the Gentiles. I said earlier, there are some of us this morning that, that are in those tough times, that are, are struggling, they're trying to, to, to they feel like they're, they're humiliated, they just feel like everything that, that they could do is... is mounting against them, and they feel like they're in failed everything. Everything they touch is failure, and they're struggling, and, and you feel like you're in that basket being put over the wall. There, there are some here today that, that I believe that you're kind of where Saul was here. You're trying to write your own will, and you want God's stamp of approval on it. I mean, you're willing to, to do something for God, but this is what you want to do. This is the way you want it done. Like, okay, God, I'll, I'll, I will do this. Now you make it happen. I'll, I will follow you if you check box A, B, and C. And I, I can almost see this interaction between Paul and, and, and God where, where Paul says, okay, but, 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 but God, look, look at my background. God says, Paul, go to the Gentiles. Yeah, but, but look at my training, Paul. Go to the Gentiles. But, but, but Lord, look, look at my heritage. Look, look at where, where, where all this knowledge that I have. Paul, go to the Gentiles. But, but God, go to the Gentiles. But Go to the Gentiles. And how often are we doing the same thing? Where we're like, okay, but God, but no. I've called you to do this. Well, it doesn't make sense. Let me figure that out. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says this. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, I think when we look at our Christian walk, many times we can look back at our story. That first kind of that first verse, that verse 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And, and when we accept Jesus as our Savior, when we become Christians, we become believers. You find that rest that, 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 that where you no longer have to work for this. And you can find some rest there, but it's, it's, it's a rest um, of, of, of works. But I love that second verse there, verse 29, because he goes from this kind of physical rest and begins to talk about a rest for your soul and for your heart. Just take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And, and what's being said there, what Jesus was saying is like, listen, if you want real rest, 
Like you want your heart and your soul to find rest. And you take my yoke, put it on you. Again, reminder, born and raised just outside Detroit. There aren't many yokes up there. Okay, I've, I'm a city boy pretty much through and through. Not that there are many yokes here in Tallahassee. But the idea of this yoke, right? So you, what would happen is they would, they would take these two ox, oxen. Is that the plural form? Two ox, right? Fuller, right? Okay. These two oxen. And what would end up happening is it would be a team. But one of those ox, the, the, the first ox would be the older, wiser, stronger ox. And then it would be the, the yoke next, the, the ox placed next to him would be a, a, a younger, not quite as strong, and not as smart of an ox. You see, the, the older, the stronger, the wiser ox, it would, it would carry much of the load. And in that process, it was training the younger, the weaker ox. Sometimes when we read that verse, take my yoke, we're thinking, well, it's just me. I got this big barrel on my thing, and I'm, I'm having to do all the work. And if we think through what this picture paints, with there being two oxen, one strong, smart, steady, and one young, dumb. Which of those two ox do you think we are? I'll tell you this. We have a diverse group in here of age. And some might find it comforting to hear today that we are all the young and dumb. And Jesus is the strong, wise ox who will do all the heavy work and train us as we go. To me, I think as we look at this passage, there's a lot for us to see. And if I could just kind of bring it down to that for us today, three things. One, where you're at in your life, and you might feel like there's so much going on that you're trying so hard, but yet you feel like things keep failing, and you don't understand why. I, I want to encourage you Although you don't understand it now, just like Paul didn't understand it as he's in that basket being put over the wall. I believe this, that if, that if we're faithful to God, if we, if we seek God, if we trust in him, there'll be a time in our lives where we can look back at those moments and we can celebrate that, yeah, it was painful. It stunk. It was awful. It was horrid. But God taught a lesson. And because of that lesson, it changed the whole course of my life. For some of us, it's that idea of us being willing to accept people and come alongside people, help bear their burdens like Barnabas did. And then for some of you this morning, you just need to find rest. You've worked so hard. You've tried so many things. You're trying to, to put the the yoke on your shoulders and your shoulders alone. And every time you look back, you see all these zigzag lines and the field's all messed up. And you're drenched with sweat. And you just need to find the rest in Jesus. Hook up to his yoke. And let him do all the hard work. That's what I love about the scripture, folks. That's what I love about us going through these stories verse by verse. We learn so many lessons, and there, there are weeks, I think, when we come to church, and we have to kind of, it's hard for us to figure out maybe an application, but I think today it's pretty clear through his word, and I fervently believe this, that, that we all can find ourselves in one of these predicaments or one of these places. We want instant gratification, don't we? We want the instant yes. We want to see the end of the road. and We want it now. Those verses we read today, up to the next time we see Paul, covers a 10-year period of life where God would continue to break down and work in Paul. He's doing the same to us today. Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for how you don't give up on us, how you pursue us. And it doesn't matter what our, our background is. It doesn't matter our fortune in life. It doesn't matter where we stand. It doesn't matter who we know. It doesn't matter what we know. But you pursue us. Lord, I, I, I know I know that we, we live in a room with people who have lives of hurt, confusion, uncertainty. And they don't understand it. They, they don't understand why. I mean, they've given their life to you. They, they want to do for you. But yet they find themselves in a basket and they're running and really nowhere to go. God, I pray that you help them to find you. Help them to find their rest in you. Help them to to quit trying to carry the yoke on their own but come alongside you and lean on you and learn from you and lift with you. Lord, I pray if there's any here this morning that that have never accepted you as their Savior, God, I pray that you're just calling them today, that that you just break through their hearts, help them to understand there's this void in their life and they've tried to fill it with so many things. but it's like a black hole. It gets bigger and bigger the more they try and cram into it. And whatever it is, is never enough. And so their peace needs to be you. Lord, I just, I just love you and thank you for what you've done. Thank you for who you are and what you will do. So do a great work. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at R-H dash church.com if you don't have a a regular church home we would love for you to consider visiting us you can go to our website rh-church.com or find us on facebook for directions until next time